The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, verse 19b. <laughs> I'm going to preach on half a verse today. I did a rough calculation that if I preached the whole gospel of Mark at that pace, it would take me 30 years or so to preach through the entire gospel of Mark. This is not my usual pattern to preach on half a verse. And it's certainly not my pattern to preach on a parenthetical verse. One of the most important parenthetical statements in the Bible I know your outline says the most important parenthetical statement, but I'm not 100% sure that's true. And I am so geeky that I actually searched them all this week. There are 335 parenthetical statements in the NIV 84. And I looked at them, and there's some pretty weighty ones. But this is weighty. What is a parenthetical statement? Parenthetical statement is one that's in parentheses. Statement of the obvious. In almost every English translation, the verse I'm going to preach on today is in parentheses. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, a parentheses is a modern grammatical invention or convention. It looks like the mouth of a smiley face going one direction or the other, right? In case you didn't know. Uh, it's used to add some extra information to a statement, something incidental, something beside the point. Beside the point means it isn't the main point. It's not the main idea. Generally, something you can get along without, like a footnote or something for those who are interested, really interested in a lot of extra information. Now, for me as an expository preacher, I've been trained that expository preaching is the main point of the passage, is the main point of the sermon. I agree with that. So for the most part, expository sermons do avoid sidetracks. They avoid burdening the hearer with all kinds of extra information. You stick to the main point, a preaching expert would say to a young preacher. And what is the main point? Well, the main point of this passage is the darkness of the human heart. The defilement, the spiritual defilement of the human heart. Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the scribes, the fanatical re religious legalists of his day, the hypocrites of his day. They had a whole system, a man-made system of religion and traditions and regulations are added to the laws of God, and they forced these add-ons on people's consciences. They pressed their rules, their traditions, their regulations on people's consciences. And in this case, in this encounter, it was ritualistic hand-washing. Uh, as part of overall system of ritual washings that are nowhere commanded in the laws of God. They're just man-made. They're extra rituals that had been passed on from generation to generation. Previous generations of rabbis, just like them, and they bound people's consciences with these traditions, these washings, 
Look at verses 3 through 5. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So Jesus exposed their fundamental flaw, which is preferring their man-made traditions over the laws of God. Verses 6 through 8. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. God's word is the standard, not man-made traditions. And God exposed that pattern as terrible, as corrupting, deadly for their souls actually. But then Jesus unleashed a a bombshell on them. And he did it for everyone to hear. He called everyone in. This had been perhaps a private conversation he was having with the scribes and Pharisees, just him and his disciples and them. But now he wanted everyone to hear this. Calls everyone in, verse 14 and 15, and said, listen to me everyone and understand this. Nothing outside a person can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that makes him unclean. Now, typical of Jesus, he makes this pronouncement to the crowd with no further explanation. That's it. The full implications of this would not be clear for decades, actually. The explanation comes a little bit more in a moment. But the king of the kingdom of heaven just lays out this timeless principle for everyone to hear. And that is this. Nothing outside you can make you spiritually unclean by coming into you. The spiritual uncleanness comes from inside you. By implication, Jesus will make it clear also, nothing external can cleanse you spiritually either. Nothing outside you can clean you. These ritual washings had no power to do that. Spiritual defilement comes from within, so true cleansing must come from within as well. But again, Jesus made none of this clear to the crowds. He just said it and then goes inside with his apostles. And he gives the fuller explanation to them. Look at verse 17 through 23. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, this translation has, are you without understanding? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside 
and make a man unclean. So that's the main point. main idea here is all spiritual defilement comes from our hearts. Now that was the main point of last week's sermon. Walk through that last week. The darkness and evil of our hearts is the true problem of the human condition. Therefore, nothing outside a person uh, can spiritually defile them. The human heart is a poisoned fountain. A poisoned fountain. What is the heart? Well, the heart, biblically, is the part of you that studies and learns and thinks and reasons and plans and loves and hates, feels emotions and makes choices. The Bible says your heart does all of those things. The heart is the center of the entire human experience. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. What does that mean, the wellspring of life? Well, everything to do with the human life comes from the heart. It's like into a spring of water, a wellspring that flows up and out into everything we do. And we're told to guard it carefully. But Jesus says in this text, it's already poisoned. It's already polluted. And no foods cause that defilement. Nor the uncleanness of your hands physically. No, this defilement is spiritual, deep. It's at the core. And no external regulations can make it better or worse. And oh, by the way, this is where the parenthetical statement comes in. Oh, by the way, gospel writer Mark under the influence of the Holy Spirit, stuck a, a significant historical banner in this moment. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Wow. I believe it's difficult to overstate the significance of this statement, of that moment. Interestingly, Mark is the only gospel writer that sticks that historical banner in it. This is like the ultimate, wait, what moment? Like, what, what just happened? I don't even know that they noticed it. Like when, he, when at the moment, it's like, wait a minute now. Something huge has just happened. Did you, did you hear that? Did you hear what he just said? Do you realize the significance of that? I don't think they did. It's amazing because Jesus had been leveling the Pharisees and the scribes for preferring their traditions to the clear law of God laws of Moses. But now here, Jesus is specifically ending the jurisdiction of some clear laws of God given through Moses, specifically claiming that those laws are now obsolete. Wow. Hence, this sermon. Now, I'm going to just pause here and say, why, why am I doing this? Why am I preaching this sermon? Well, two reasons. First of all, in everything I want to do, always in preaching, but specifically here in the Gospel of Mark, my purpose is to magnify and exalt the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to think great thoughts of Christ, and there is potential for that here, that we would see the majesty 
and the authority and the person of Christ to be able to do this. He has the right. He has the right to do this. And so that we have a sense of the greatness of Christ by this, that's going to achieve my purpose. But I have a second purpose, and it's, uh, I would say, apologetics. The defense of the faith. We are in a regular pattern of defending our faith to unbelievers. We're surrounded by an unbelieving world. And our country, our culture, is becoming increasingly biblically illiterate and increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity. And on some specific test cases and themes, we seem very much out of step with what is going on in our culture, such as homosexuality, such as the significance of gender and gender-based roles, and other sexual mores in general, we are going to become increasingly seen to be weird. Our views are coming from the Scripture. And, and many of our, our uh, detractors or, or opponents on these issues understand that, and they seek to denigrate the Bible as an outmoded, archaic, or mythological book. And one of the things, some of the people that have read some of the Bible and think they know the Bible well, bring up are these dietary laws. They'll say things like this, you can't eat pork, you can't eat shrimp, and you can't eat lobster, according to the Bible, and, and, and we're supposed to listen to that. You don't even live up to that, but we're supposed to listen to you on homosexuality, or on gender, or on other things. Why should we? All right, so I felt this was a good teachable moment for our church to say, let's address it so we at least understand in-house the wisdom of God and putting the 66 books of the Bible together and how beautiful and perfect that wisdom is. And the ending of the dietary laws by Jesus is part of that equation. So we're going to look at it today. Does that make sense? Now, if you think I shouldn't have spent an entire sermon on that, you can, one of you can tell me that afterwards, all right? If 10 of you think of it, you know... Only this one of you will come up and say, that wasn't worth the whole sermon. All right, so let's start. I'm going to give you four words about the dietary laws, the food laws. Four words I want to develop are food laws established, originally established. Then the food laws powerless. Food laws fulfilled. And food laws obsolete. That's the movement that I want to give you on the dietary regulations. First, established. The food laws were established by God. God set them up. God did, in fact, restrict the diet of the Jews. Uh, there are many examples. The first mention, I think, that I could find in the Bible of dietary restrictions is in Leviticus 10. And it says there in verse 10 and 11, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You must teach the Israelites and Teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. And then the very next chapter, Leviticus 11, lays out the whole thing, the dietary laws. Uh, Leviticus 11, 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a split hoof completely divided and that chews the cud. Uh, there are some that only chew the cud or only have a split hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The coney, uh, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. 
The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a split hoof completely divided, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. In addition, the chapter excludes shellfish, as I mentioned. Uh, Leviticus 11, 9 and 10. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it is detestable to you. So that whole chapter, Leviticus 11, lays out what is holy, kosher foods. You probably heard that word kosher. It just means from the Hebrew word for clean or pure. These are the clean foods. In Leviticus 11.47, you must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not. Now the reason given for this distinction was this, to set the Jewish nation apart as holy unto the Lord. That was God's reason for doing it. Leviticus 20, 25 and 26. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground, those which I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. I think that's the point. To set the Jews apart from all the nations unto God to be his own possession. Now this is part of a, lar a larger set of laws that theologians commonly call the ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws are laws that govern the religious life and the social life of the Jews and marked them as a holy and, in the King James Version, peculiar people. I love that word. You are a peculiar people unto me. The Jews were to be a peculiar people. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, this is KJV. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Or again in Deuteronomy 14.2. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasure possession. So that was his reasoning that the Jews would be set apart as a treasure for God. Central to the ceremonial laws, central to it was the animal sacrificial system, including all of the rules for the priests and the Levites. It also included circumcision uh, for all boy babies born in Israel on the eighth day. They were to be circumcised, and that definitely marked the Jews apart, uh, separate from the Gentile nations, circumcised and uncircumcised people. It was a huge topic of debate for the early church. By these ceremonial laws, the Jews were set apart as sacred, as a sacred people, and a barrier, a dividing wall was set up between them and the Gentiles. These laws, these ceremonial laws set up that barrier. So, the food laws were established by God. Secondly, though, we want to note the food laws were powerless spiritually. They had no saving power. 
The book of Hebrews especially makes this plain, but it's not just in the book of Hebrews, but Hebrews does. And the New Testament makes it plain. Now again, Jesus has said plainly here in our text, nothing that we eat can defile the heart. Look again at our text, Mark 7, 18 and 19. Nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean. For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Paul said the same thing about food. 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So food doesn't do anything spiritually for you. Hebrew says that the Jewish ceremonial laws in general, including circumcision and animal sacrifice and food laws, were symbolic and powerless. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10 says, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They have no power to cleanse your conscience. Feel guilty, this won't solve it. They are only, this is Hebrews 9.10, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, until the new covenant comes in. And then uh, next chapter, Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So I'm saying all, none of these ceremonial laws could not take away your sin. They're powerless to do that. Paul says the same thing in Colossians, though the context is slightly different, different there, and we'll circle back to Colossians too. I, don't, I just want to mention it. Um, the regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They have no power to clean up your soul. So, strict observance of dietary laws is powerless to restrain lust and it is powerless to cleanse the conscience from, from guilt, from sin. In fact, the whole law in general was declared powerless to save. Romans 8.3, what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh to be a sin offering. So the law couldn't save you from sin. The law had no power to do that. And so that's why God sent his son. Romans 8.3. And then again, Galatians 2.16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So by, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So they're powerless to save you. So that's the second point. Third point. The food laws have been fulfilled. They're fulfilled. God's purpose in them has been met now. Why did God institute these laws to begin with? We've addressed that. To mark the Jews as a sacred or separate holy people. Why did he want to do that? Well, there are a number of reasons, but the main reason, I think, was to give the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, an address. Among all the peoples and tribes and languages and nations on earth that we'd know where to look to find the Savior of the world. For Jesus himself said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. Well, who are they? Oh, they're that peculiar people marked out by all of these ceremonies. They're a people apart. They don't live like us, Gentiles would notice. They're just a unique apart people. 
And so therefore, when Jesus comes as a son of Abraham, as a son of David, born into the midst of that, he has a locating address. And those ceremonial laws located him in history and among the the nations of the earth. And once he was born of a woman, born under the law to fulfill the law, that the ceremonial laws didn't need to be anymore. They were, they'd been fulfilled. Their purpose was met. So that's what it says in Galatians 3.19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And then Jesus said beautifully in Matthew 5.17, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So he fulfills all of that. Now the fourth point is food laws are now obsolete. They are. They're obsolete. Well, that's what our text says. In the saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. They're obsolete. Uh, So what that means is that all foods are ceremonially clean for us. Now, he made this plain to Peter in Acts chapter 10. You remember this whole story where the gospel's spreading out and it's moving out in the book of Acts from Jew only to Jew plus Gentile. That's the big movement in the book of Acts. It's starting in Jerusalem, going through Judea and to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. By the end of the book of Acts, it's in Rome, the gospel spread. And it's moving out. But God shows Peter as an apostle, the apostle to the Jews, he's called, where Paul's the apostle of the Gentiles, but Peter, the apostle of the Jews, was given the privilege of bringing the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius and to his family and, and to his friends. You remember that whole story in Acts chapter 10 where God gives Cornelius a vision and he sends some messengers to go get Peter. And Peter's going to preach the gospel to him. Meanwhile, he gets Peter ready. And the way he gets Peter ready is Peter's hungry and wanted lunch. And he's like, all right. So he's going to have a prayer time while lunch is being prepared. So he goes up on the roof and he has a vision. Acts chapter 10. Peter became hungry, wanted something to eat. And while the meal is being prepared, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals. All kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth. Nasty. Anyway. And birds of the air. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Never, Lord, Peter said. Now that's Peter in a nutshell right there. (laughs) Never, Lord. You should, can I just say something? You should never say never to the Lord. (laughs) But that's Peter in a nutshell. Did it four times. I'm not going to tell you later. Come and ask me the four times he said never to Jesus or to the Lord. That's who Peter was. He's like, never, Lord. No way. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Then the voice came from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now that's a huge moment in redemptive history. And the whole thing happened twice. So he had to get this message. Then he went, this orthodox, law-abiding Jew, went to a Gentile home, preached the gospel, crossed over into his home, preached the gospel. They believed. The Holy Spirit poured out on Cornelius and his household as they all believed the gospel, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then, undoubtedly, in, in, in Acts 11, it's pretty clear, they sat down and had a meal together. They ate together. 
Paul makes this plain as well in Romans 14, 14. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. There's no, no food has a spiritual virus on it. There's no such thing. And Paul specifically warns all legalists that seek to impose new dietary regulations because there's always Christian legalists who are going to come in and, and come up with food laws that they're making up on their own. God didn't tell them to do it, but they're going to make up a strict religion that has to do with eating. So 1 Timothy 4, 3-5, these legalists forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. But that's a thanksgiving verse for you guys. Just eat and enjoy and be thankful to God because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. So we Christians can eat any food we want any time we want, there is no spiritual contagion on any food. Those dietary laws are obsolete. They're done. Those are the four words I wanted to give you about the food laws. All right, but now I want to just stop and just be in awe at the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Just, let's just stand in awe at the supremacy of Christ to be able to do this. This is Jesus' amazing authority. Over and over in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus' authority celebrated, right? Authority celebrated. Like in Mark 1, the authority of his teaching, just the way he would teach. Mark 1, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. In that same chapter, his authority over demons. He would just speak a word and they'd obey him. People were amazed, asked, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And then in the next chapter, Jesus' authority to forgive sins, it's linked to his authority to heal. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and walk. And he did. Later in that same chapter, Mark chapter 2, verse 28, Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's incredible. In other words, if you have any questions about what you may or may not do on the Sabbath, come and ask me. I'll tell you. I decide. I decide what is right and wrong on the Sabbath. Authority. He's Lord of the Sabbath. After Jesus stilled the storm, just spoke and said, peace, be still. And in an instant, the wind and the waves were quieted. The wind and the waves, silence. And they said to each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus is Lord of all. And later in Mark's gospel, when Jesus will cleanse the temple, he will call that holy place my house. My house will be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And after his resurrection, he'll make this statement, sweeping statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's who Jesus is. So in this declaration that all foods are clean, Jesus is announcing his intention to fulfill all the Mosaic ceremonial laws and bring that era to an end. The old covenant era is over. It's ended. 
those laws coming down from on high, coming down from Almighty God through Moses, the servant of God, those ceremonial laws are fulfilled and obsolete now because Jesus said so. And he's the only one that can do it. Now, of all of this authority that I've been celebrating here, the greatest, the most significant for you personally and for me is his authority to forgive your sins. His authority to declare you clean. Oh, you should celebrate that on Thursday? I'd say you should celebrate it every day. That Jesus can look at a filthy, nasty sinner like you and me that has that kind of a corrupt, dark heart and you look at that list. You look at that list in verse 21 through 23. Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. This polluted heart. And if you're honest, you look at those words and you're like, that, I still struggle with those. They're still in me. But Jesus, because of the greatness of his authority and the greatness of our salvation in Christ, has the power to look at you and if you believe in him and you trust in him, he can declare you clean of all your sins. He has that kind of power. Remember how God said to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. I want to think about Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Satan can bring all the accusations. I could hear him saying that to Satan. Who are you to call someone unclean that I have made clean? He has that kind of power to declare you clean. And he does this by the message of the gospel. He has that power. You know, in that whole circumcision controversy in Acts 15, and they have to figure out whether the Gentile converts have to obey the ceremonial laws or not, including circumcision. Because let me tell you something, it wasn't just circumcision. It was a doorway into a whole lifestyle of legalism. It was a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear, Peter says. But Peter said this in Acts 15, 7 through 9. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. Listen now. For he purified their hearts by faith. How beautiful is that? In an instant, by faith in the gospel, they were made pure. That's justification. That's salvation, instant salvation through faith in Christ. God declaring you clean forever. He has that kind of power. Titus 3, 5 and 6 speaks of that washing. God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Then he has the power to make you clean actually, so you live a clean life, a cleaner and cleaner life. We know that we'll never be perfectly clean in this world while we live. 
but he has the power to transform us by the renewing of our minds to transform us and that that transformation of the heart is predicted in that beautiful passage in Ezekiel 36 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What laws? The moral laws. The permanent laws which are summarized by Jesus beautifully in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. He will move you by his spirit to fulfill those permanent laws which will still be operative in heaven forever. They're permanent and beautiful. And so Jesus has the power to do that. Jesus also frees us from enslavement to sin itself. Hand washing, the rituals, the traditions, that didn't have any power to, to set you free from wickedness. But Jesus does. Jesus said in John 8, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus has the power to make you free from pollution, free from wickedness, free from sin. So you don't sin anymore. And someday you won't. <laughs> Amen? I'm looking forward to that day. No more sin ever for all eternity will be done with it. In the meantime, we can be increasingly living lives of freedom from corruption and lust and wickedness. Jesus has the power to do that. As Romans 6.18 says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And it's not religious rules and regulations and strict dietary laws that set us free from sin's defilements. It's faith in Christ. So Jesus has the power to set you free from religious legalism. Let's never become a legalistic cult. Hey, pastor, that's a very good idea. You heard it here first. Let's never become a legalistic cult. Many religions in the world have strict dietary laws. They've gone on. They're part of religion. I think it's because most normal non-religious people, it's said of them their God is their stomach. They live for appetites. And they, they glut, glut themselves on things. So then religious people don't. And they become strict about those things. And so there's all manners of that kind of strictness in various types of man-made religions. Hindus, for example, are very strict about what they will eat and will not eat. Obviously, the eating of all beef is forbidden because of the, the cow is sacred. But many go beyond it into the principle of nonviolence, and they're just vegetarians. They won't eat any meat. Hindus. Buddhists follow similar patterns, many. Uh, Muslims follow essentially the kosher laws of the Old Testament. They don't eat pork. And they have a whole month, Ramadan, devoted to fasting in which they will not eat during the daylight hours. Jews, of course, observant Jews, will only eat kosher foods and there's rabbis that determine what's kosher and what's not. Roman Catholics, some Roman Catholics still fast during Lent. They won't eat meat on Fridays. I was in a bind growing up as a Catholic because I hated fish. So I was a... I was a grilled cheese guy um, on Fridays. That was my go-to. So it was a problem for me. But there's still these dietary laws. Many cults follow them. The Mormons have dietary laws that they follow. Seventh-day Adventists have them. 
And as we already said in Colossians 2, Paul addresses Christian legalism there. I think that's what he's addressing more than Mosaic legalism or laws of Moses. But he says the regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, are destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. God didn't tell them to say it. They made it up. And such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. That's asceticism. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So strictness in eating is hard to achieve, and therefore people can feel spiritually proud of it. It's part of their religion. We Christians are free, of all, free from all that. It's not what we do. Now, I feel like I need this. This is like a public service announcement now. That doesn't mean that everything we eat is good for our physical health. Do I need to say that? That's a different matter. I'm talking about spiritual defilement. Some foods can make us fat or have heart trouble. If we are good stewards of the body, we'll be careful of not only what foods we eat, but friends, listen carefully now, how much we eat, like on Thursday, all right? You know, what are we going to be like two hours after we've done eating, all right? Very sleepy. So, that's a different matter. You need to be a good steward of your body. Be careful what you chew and swallow. That's a different matter. But here I'm talking about spiritual defilement. And isn't it beautiful to consider that Jesus will someday complete our perfection. All foods are destined to perish with use, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6.13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Whatever you can chew and swallow, what you're chewing with and, and where it's going when you swallow and what you're, what you're actually chewing, all of it's temporary. Whole thing's temporary. It's not what life is about. No matter what we eat, at some point we're going to die and our bodies will be destroyed in the grave. But Christ will raise us up in glorious resurrection bodies. And those bodies will never perish, spoil, or fade. Described in Philippians 3.21, Jesus, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And in heaven, we will eat whatever they serve and we'll enjoy it. And I do believe the first meal I'm going to be eating, Jesus will hand it to me, will be fish. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study this half a verse. We thank you for the incredible power of the Word of God. We thank you for its depth and its richness. Help us to not ever be ashamed of your Word. Help us to not wilt when people make mocking comments about it. Help us to be prepared now if they bring up the dietary laws that we know what to say. But bigger, bigger, bigger than all of that, help us to see the greatness of the saving work that Jesus does for sinners like us who are so defiled naturally and who could not save ourselves. But Jesus does have that power to declare us clean and then to make us so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.